If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. Why is it there is such a striking discrepancy between the images that are portrayed day-to-day in pornography and what we might call the real world? This week, our speakers delve into the world of pornography. Many people believe the dark fantasies portrayed in pornography and the dark realities of the porn industry itself are corrupting both relationships and the society we live in. But is porn really incompatible with intimacy? Will it always function to quantify bodies in a capitalist society? And will this always rely and reify on the inequality of women? Where is the space for intimacy and love and context and warmth in pornography? Is this simply the fact that it's nothing more than one tip of a mammoth, paternalistically driven capitalism? It's really just an industry where you know women are relegated to the level of a product. From the dark side of pornography, our speakers turn to the potential pornography could hold. Should we move away from legislation to censor pornography and look to it as a tool for sex education? Could a feminist pornography be possible, inclusionary of diverse bodies and pleasure, and truly offer a liberating alternative to celebrate intimacy today? And what would a world look like if pornography had an ability to reflect authenticity in what, after all, is the day-to-day discourse of one of the most important aspects of human relationships, love, intimacy, attachment and sex? To find out, this week we're joined by ex-escort and author of Diary of a London Call Girl, Brooke Magnanti, human rights campaigner, Peter Tatchell, erotic review editor, Rowan Pelling, and feminist thinker, Finn McKay. Please do let us know what you thought of today's episode by leaving us a review and rating on iTunes, telling anyone you know that might be interested, and making sure you subscribe today to never miss an episode. Back now to Mark Salter, who hosts this week's episode. I wonder first, Finn, we could hear from you with your three minutes. 
Um, so the problems with the multi-billion dollar global porn industry are not because it's largely created by men, but because some men have looked at women's oppression and seen only a marketing opportunity. The construction of sex and sexuality and gender roles in mainstream pornography, I would say, is indeed regressive. The great bulk of it is concerned with objectifying women, removing women's sexual agency, patronizing men, fetishizing rape, child sexual abuse, racism, disabilities, poverty, and any other inequality you can think of. Wherever there is a structural inequality or injustice, there is someone sexualizing it and selling it back to us as entertainment. Nowadays, most porn, of course, is viewed online, and there is much free pornography. Pornhub, for example, is the most visited porn site in the world, with about 81 million visitors per day. And I think it's important in this debate that we know what sort of representations of women and sexuality and heterosexual sex and gender relations that most people are seeing on this, for example, the most popular free porn site in the world. So they published very good stats, and their 2017 report actually found the most popular search term for the third year in a row was actually lesbian. So I don't know, whoop up for visibility there, for my kind. Um, alongside other popular search terms, stepmom, sister, and teen. And when you go on that site, there's short films with the description underneath and various categories you can choose from. Descriptions such as, and this is going to be explicit because, as I say, we're not talking about some 1970s copy of Razzle your granddad used to keep in the cupboard. Pornography has changed, so free porn, uh, heavily pregnant teen abused by men, unwanted painful anal, passed out slut letting me fuck her brains out, and who knows, maybe because it's half term, when I checked on there to see what the most popular titles were this week, petite babysitter whore, tiny teen babysitter. I could go on, but you kind of get the gist. The porn industry depends on women's inequality, both to recruit people to work within it, that's women and men in fact, and to sell that sexualized inequality back to a largely male audience. The fact that this industry is so successful is a sign of how far we have to go to achieve not just gender equality, but race and class equality as well. Porn thrives in an unequal society. It has no place then in an equal society. Thank you. Eloquently put. Rowan, I, I'm sorry, but do <laughs> Yeah, apologize. sorry, we've, we've changed order. Yes, um, several times. <laughs> uh, so, uh, my feeling is, is we're here to debate can there be alternative models of pornography to the sort of pornography that Finn has been describing. And I think most of us would agree that that sort of pornography, as listed by her, is incredibly dispiriting and discourages intimacy. So first of all, I'd say, what do we actually mean by pornography? Uh, you know, does it only flourish in an unequal society? I would say pornography in some form has always been with us because just as we are deeply moved by sex, we're deeply moved to represent sex. And what was pornography of yesteryear is very often viewed as the incredible art of today. I've just been to Liverpool Tate 
to review uh, the new exhibition of Egon Schiele's nudes. There's a wonderful picture of a hand job and a wonderful picture of a blow job. They're not titled that way, <laughs> I'd say, by the Tate, but they're incredibly moving representations of sex, and there's also Francesca Woodman's beautiful nudes there. So pornography is not a simple thing. It is, you know, one person's pornography is somebody else's incredibly beautiful erotic art. Many of us will watch erotic films, uh, things like the Duke of Burgundy, maybe uh, Michael Winterbottom's Nine Songs, which showed real-time sex, you know, it showed real sex on the screen. Who is making this judgment? The second thing I say is, do we know that porn corrupts us? Uh, David Spiegelhorter uh, brought out a book called Sex by Numbers that looked at a lot of the research behind sex. He could not find any uh, statistics that at this moment directly correlate to an increased amount of pornography correlating to an increased number of sex crimes. It's not definitely... I'm not saying that that won't be found, and I'm not saying that some pornography does not help create an environment in which sex crimes happen, but we don't have those statistics as yet. And furthermore, um, in 2013, a survey by the University of Western Ontario found out that people who watch porn are more likely to display uh, feminist views. That's men and women. And I would say the reason for that is obviously if you are probably, you know, say a religious fundamentalist, you're not going to be watching pornography and you're probably more likely not to believe in female emancipation. Then I'd say, what do we mean by feminist porn? Well, there's as many versions of that as there are versions of feminism. Um, so we, we've sort of had the view um, expressed that maybe it would be more sweet, tender. It might be, but equally, who's to say that that is a feminist version of pornography? I have friends who make porn who are feminists, and it can be, you know, quite S&M-y. It can show all sorts of fantasies. You know, I don't think we're here to police other people's fantasies. And lastly, I'd still say we're, interest, uh, we're entering quite an interesting sort of realm again in terms of these sorts of debates, because in the 60s, uh, you had sort of someone like Betty Dodson really, really feeling very strongly that equality in the bedroom was one of the most important facets of feminism. And she was uh, teaching people to masturbate. She was encouraging women to go and buy sex toys. And there was quite a big strand of feminism that thought that that wasn't the important issue. And I think we're seeing a bit of that now because we have sex-positive feminism. We also have a, a, an opposing force. Okay, thank you very much. Brooke, I believe we come to you now. So, so far we've talked about the effects of porn and how we perceive the finished products. Uh, I do think that a lot of people believe, whether they acknowledge it or not, that there's a hard and bright line between erotica, which we perceive as good, and porn, which we believe is bad. And when we drill down on the details of that, it almost always comes down to a Hicklin test kind of criterion of, I know porn when I see it. And, and this is not a unique failing of conservatives and, and the Nixon administration. I mean, even Audre Lorde kind of writes as much in, when discussing erotica. And uh, the problem that I see with a personal aesthetic preference as being the benchmark of morality or ideology when something is classified as good or bad, helpful or not helpful, is that the origin of how we interpret that, how we interpret what we see, we don't really examine that. Deep and early instruction in patriarchal morality is almost impossible to dislodge. And I would challenge you to consider that perhaps the actors in porn have thought about that already more deeply than almost anyone else in this room or indeed on this stage, as none of us have been porn actors. 
porn branding itself as feminist has been around at least as long as the web. Uh, but this refers only to the end product's content and not the conditions of production. This makes about as much sense as assuming that because a shirt is beautiful, it must have been produced sweatshop free, or because the coffee tastes good, that it must have been fair trade. Or indeed, that if something looks and feels cheap, it is necessarily the product of ex exploitation. But in fact, I feel these qualities aren't relevant. One thing I, I kind of wanted to do today was uh, find a point of agreement with Finn, as I know we'll diverge sharply. I agree with her that free sites are the enemy. <laughs> Pay for your porn, hashtag <laughs> ban freebies. Uh, because what is feminist porn? It's not a style, it's not a feeling, it's a workplace in which women are empowered in the literal sense that they are the ones who own their means of production in a way that's compatible with labor rights and bodily autonomy. We know now that on Hollywood film sets, women are underpaid, they are abused, and they are silenced. And we've only started really speaking about and really addressing about this in the last year. However, every injustice that happens on a porn set is something that we know about. James Dean, uh, Linda Lovelace. Why is it those names ring out, but what Harvey Weinstein did was hidden for so long? So I challenge everyone who's never been any kind of sex worker to sit with this, that our opinions, however well-intentioned about porn, however grounded in theory, uh, must be matched against the experience of the workers who will be influenced by the policy that these kinds of discussions necessarily influence. Give people with the most literal skin in the game the biggest seat at the table, and that is current porn workers, the people, not the producers, not the distributors, but the people whose sexual labor is what's on display, the people who are literally performing pornography, pictures of whores. Thank you very much. Come back to that a little more. And finally, Peter. I have huge sympathy for the feminist critique of porn. I think it's absolutely right to say that porn that involves coercion, trafficking, exploitation, manipulation, and pressure is in all circumstances morally wrong. I also find it deeply and profoundly shocking and offensive the way in which so much porn calculatedly degrades and humiliates women. It targets women for humiliation. So that kind of porn, in my view, is not valid, not legitimate, and should in no way be countenanced. But on the other hand, I can also see that there is some porn, albeit a minority of porn, which is not abusive, which is about the celebration and enjoyment of sex. We've heard mention of feminist porn, that is, porn by and for women. Not all of which will be non-abusive, but definitely the examples that I've seen are of a very different character to mainstream porn and do not dwell on this idea of degrading and humiliating women. So I think it's really important that we don't lump all porn together, that we make a distinction between abusive and non-abusive porn. And then I think we have to start from a basic fundamental philosophical position. Namely, in my personal view, there is nothing wrong with the naked human body. 
There is nothing wrong with sex. And therefore, why should depictions of nudity and sex be wrong? These are healthy, positive aspects of being human. So if the act itself is not intrinsically wrong, why should depictions of it be deemed to be wrong? But then I'd go one step forward, and I'd say that in certain circumstances, porn is a positive social good. A positive social good for individuals and for the wider society. And I'll just give you a few examples. First of all, for people who don't have a partner, why should they be deprived of a sexual life? Why should they be denied sexual fulfillment? If you're widowed or widower, you've lost your partner, you haven't found a new partner, why should you, whether you're man or male or female, why should you be denied sexual enjoyment and fulfillment? If you're not young and blessed with good looks, why equally should you be denied the opportunity to have sexual fantasies and fulfillment with people that you find attractive? In addition, we know from young people, because of the failure of sex and relationship education in schools, that for many young people, porn is a form of sex education. It's not the ideal form, it's not the best form, it's not the desirable form, but the reality is, it is a form of sex education for many young people. The final point I'd say is that for men to have regular sex is very important for their health. Prostate cancer is a major killer. And we know that research shows that men who have five or more ejaculations a week between the ages of 18 and 59 have a 30 to 40% less chance of developing prostate cancer. So if porn can help men get their quota in the absence of a partner, I think it's pos positively good for the health of the nation. <laughs> And on that rather fascinating and perhaps unknown statistic, uh, we will now move on to uh, uh, the, 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 the first question I'd like to ask, which comes out of that to me is, well, why is there such a big discrepancy between the, the various forms of pornography you've described and the real world? Uh, Brooke, I, mean, I wonder if it might be possible for, for you to start out by exploring that. Why this gulf between porn and normal, as it were, intimate life? I would say because, because the product of porn is performance. You know, we can try to capture authentic connections on camera, but the camera is often missing something. Let's sort of draw an analogy with Hollywood. They often say that once film stars get together, they no longer have chemistry on camera it, because they're sharing that chemistry privately. It's somewhat similar in escorting. It's, it's a performance that you're giving and that necessarily differs from what you would do with a long-term partner. But as anybody who's had a long-term partner could say, you have different sex at different times. Sometimes you do have more performance sex and sometimes you have the highly intimate sex. But in terms of what sells, and it's very much uh, a question of what sells, is people want the porn star experience. And in escorting, there's a very hard line between people like me who sold the girlfriend experience and people who sell the porn star experience. There's not a whole lot of overlap there. So Finn, how does that sit with your view? Um, no, I would agree, absolutely, that's right. And I think that's, the performance element is one reason why, just one reason, why it's so ironic 
that pornography and mainstream pornography that young people are going to be able to access is, is marketing itself as sex education, which indeed it is, by the way. Pornhub that I mentioned with those titles from there wants to market itself as a sex education site, stepping into the gulf that has been left you know, with a gap in PSHE and things like that in schools in sex and relationships education. They have a sexual wellness part of their site. Sexual wellness, sexual advice from the people that know it best, from people that act sexual pleasure to earn a living. Acting sexual pleasure, not actually experiencing sexual pleasure or giving that to another person, acting it. So for many ways, it's an irony, the whole porn star experience have sex like a porn star. What, act your sexual enjoyment? That's an important point when it comes to women's sexual agency, because there is many, many girls growing up today in this era of mainstream free pornography available on your phone, thinking of sex as a performance. That's not entirely new, but I would say it's got worse. And I have spoken with young women who will say things like, when they're having sex, their thoughts are about how they look, what their hair is doing, how their breasts are moving, how they're sitting, how they're standing. It's all about a performance because we are beginning to under understand sex solely through that sort of mainstream pornographied, pornified kind of way, which is very one-dimensional. But we need to ask different questions in this whole debate. We need to ask, why are the lines between sex and violence so blurred? Why do so many men get turned on by rape? Why is rape such a staple of mainstream media and pornography? What is going on there? How are we going to have discussions about that? And sadly, there's not that much difference sometimes between porn and the, quotes real world. If you look at people working in child health, child safeguarding, talking about the number of girls approaching health agencies with anal tearing, with chlamydia of the eye, because people are acting out what they've seen in pornography. I want to address two points of that. The first being, really, the implication that the lack of sexual health education in this country affects only women, that only young women are concerned about performance. No, I think it's men how, as well. we, how we learn about sex and sexuality is a product of experience. I do think that young boys do have a lot of anxieties. But I think that there's room for a world in which the people who are the most experienced can talk to people who are not at the 101 level. Do I think what I write about is appropriate to take into schools for year sevens, for year eights? Absolutely not. But the, that people are seeking this out anyway. There is a gap that is not being filled. It's not the fault of porn that that's not no, being I filled. Agree. Yeah. Over and yeah. again, I, we've had opportunities in this country right. to address that. We started talking very much about commodification. You see that in pop videos. That sort of sexualization is not just in pornography. It's in very porny pop videos. It's also, you know, we, are, we regulate for alcohol. Alco-pops have the same sort of effect on young people that watching, you know, unbridled pornography does. None of this is good, but what we're trying to say here is, is the legitimate alternative form of pornography that can give you something. And I would say, of course there is. You know, when you're saying, why isn't it, why doesn't it represent a lot of the pornography, the sort of sex that people have in real time, one thing we're missing out on is fantasy, because even as we're having sex in real time, Many of us are involving our imagination. It's a sort of huge part of it. Anyone who's grown up reading a lot of literature, I would guess, has quite an involved sexual imagination. And that 
projecting that fantasy, whether it's just running as a reel in your head or watching an inventive film or watching pornography that has that level of invention, that can be rewarding. It's just that, that most free porn, the sort of porn that we keep on coming back to, is actually just to hit your sort of addictive, more of this, I pay more, I get more. It's not really about the things we're talking about here. And, and you do have these incredible new filmmakers. I mean, Erica Lust is probably the best known who are trying to project something different. They're, they're, so one of the things Erica Lust does on her confession site is she says, okay, send me your fantasy to women. You know, send me a fantasy, and if it's a good one, I will make it. And she's done this whole series of confessions. I mean, I, I, you know, I was sort of looking at what they might be, but they might veer between badass motorcycle chick gets it on with a hitchhiker and surprises him with her strap on. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Then there's four women pretending to be cats who end up in a kind of amazing sort of orgasmic scene. Uh, there's a, a lengthy yeah. scene featuring female ejaculation. I want to come back to what <laughs> it might actually look like. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. You're I want to share <laughs> this. I want to save the best till last. Is, is female ejaculation on film still illegal here? The, there are, interestingly, yes, but, it is. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. But, but, but before we go into the content of what you know, an, an idealised or perhaps a new porn might look like, I want to stay with this idea that you know, the, the very powerful point Phil has made, that by making the unthinkable seem normal, it redefines and shifts a bracket shift towards something that's potentially quite harmful and poisonous, from what you're saying. Peter, what's your take on that? Well, certainly mainstream porn very much has a series of fantasies and expectations even that most people cannot ever live up to in their real lives. And that's why I've always argued for many, many years that sex and relationship education schools need to discuss pornography to dissect it, analyze it, critique it, and to you know, get across this idea that young people may be watching these images are online, but the chances are they're not going to meet a partner who fulfills those expectations. And I do think that a lot of the mainstream porn is very corrosive and very damaging, and we need to counter that in our schools. Our schools have a really important role to give young people realistic expectations. The other thing I'd like to say is that um, there's also a very big distinction between gay porn and straight porn. Um, I'm not saying gay porn is perfect by a lot. There's, there's abuse of gay porn as well, but much less by comparison to uh, mainstream straight porn. The other thing is that gay porn played a really major role in um, combating the HIV pandemic. A lot of HIV and gay organizations in the 1980s began promoting safer sex using porn to make it glamorous, to glamorize the idea of having sex safely. Indeed, I, in 1994, I wrote a book called um, Safer Sexy, The Guide to Gay Sex Safely, published by Castle, 
um, in which I put out, I think it was a, a big glossy coffee table book, deliberately using pornographic images to make safer sex safety. At that time, you could not show images of male erections or penetration, but my book boasted 23 images of anal and oral penetration <laughs> and 65 male erections. And, it, and, it, and, and it, it, it rewrote the laws on pornography in this country. But can I pick up on that point? Because I'd like to, there's a lot of things to cover here. You've made two many important points, but two things that what you've said is that pornography, as far as I know, is not taught routinely as part of sex education in no. schools. And before you publish your, your pioneering portrayal of the penis, if I may use that alliteration, <laughs> um, uh, it wasn't around. This is censorship, is it not, of an implicit kind? But should we not be using censorship to explicitly eradicate some of the poisoners' ideas and shifts in culture that Finn's talking about? I mean, can, what can, place can, for censorship can, can in I just say, on, on this point that has been raised, um, there's not only misogyny in most porn, there's also misogyny in the laws about porn. Exactly. Because it's not illegal to show male ejaculations, mm. but it is illegal to show female yeah. ejaculations. Yeah. So how can we, if legislation has a place in this, how can we actually use law, uh, oppression or control, I suppose, to try and, and modify this? Should we be banning some forms of pornography? Um, well, I think that probably, regardless of where we come into this discussion and our points of view, that everybody can agree that uh, non-consensual, truly non-consensual porn, as opposed to acting non-consent, uh, is not acceptable. One thing that I, I hear Peter keep touching on, though, is, is degrading, if something is actually degrading, if somebody is actually being trafficked and abused. We do want to drill down a bit, I think, on what constitutes degrading, because there are a lot of people in the kink community, for example, who regard kink as an orientation. Their definition of what is degrading versus what is not degrading is going to look, A, so entirely different from the mainstream, and B, so entirely different from person to person that these are the kind of issues, again, when we talk about, uh, for me, the production of porn being more important than what it looks like when it finishes. There are things, and I'm not going to name names, because I promised myself I'm not getting sued for libel again this year. <laughs> um, but there are uh, uh, individuals who are marketing something that is taken as feminist porn. However, their pay practices of the people who have worked on their productions are worse than if you worked for a uh, hustler, mm. you know. And so we're looking at kind of, I, I want to kind of have us looking at that angle as well as how much individual sexuality mm. differs. And once we get into everybody has consented mm. to be here, everybody can consent yeah. to be here, what really is the problem? And there has, been, there has been critiques of, of a lot of the so-called feminist, queer, porn production companies, you know, for that reason as well, but but also because how of how it appears. So there has been criticisms of it, saying that actually the tropes that are used, the themes that are used, don't look that much different to mainstream pornography. It just has a few more tattoos and piercings. And of course it's gonna take more than a you know so-called plus model and a few tattoos to unseat millennia of patriarchal constructs about women's sexuality. So I'm not even sure what a feminist pornography would look like and could look like in this culture but or how it would be made. But could you say what censorship would look like? Well, we know what censorship does. I mean, I, 
the, the state is a blunt instrument. I mean, I'm a feminist. I'm not a fan of the state. I certainly don't think the Tory government is going to be able to tell the difference between these things. But there is an interesting question about, you know, I mean, you're talking about the kink community. I mean, when you compare, say, mainstream pornography and what's degrading in that, those people are accessing free mainstream sites. They're not seeking out specific kink communities, websites where you might have to pay or register a or lot, But a lot of kink people are finding stolen content from their sites yeah. on these well, two yes. sites. Mm. I mean, that's an enormous thing right there, yeah. where if you have somebody who is producing more thoughtful form, because there, there are markets for this, yeah. the tube sites scoop up everybody. Mm. And the government is outsourcing yeah. responsibility yeah for age checks and the content yeah. and also for censorship well, of everything to <laughs> things like PornTube. And they're yeah. the ones who are being yeah. put in charge right. of that. Oh, yes. but oh, the, yeah. that. That I definitely know too. I know people who are making porn and saying that's one of their biggest problems, it's being stolen. Um, obviously, I, I agree with censorship. I, I absolutely think we should have checks and controls on the sort of pornography that's being produced. They should be more robust. We should be particularly robust about young people being able to access pornography. Uh, you know, I've got two boys. And both of them aged about eight managed to uncover yeah, my younger one who's <laughs> who is actually fairly like a little pagan himself, managed to put in three words, I think sex, penis, vagina. And then his older brother discovered this kind of like you know, triple X rated list of stuff that came up. Luckily at that age, if it says if you're eighteen, you know, if you're not over eighteen, you can't go further. They just stop. But it, it's not the way you want your children no. uh, to learn about a sex. Different sort of self-censorship. Yeah, but, but we do have some. This is what we do. It's just not robustly enforced. Like we we do have sex education. It's just not good. It's, and it's you know, good. do women want something different? Yeah. Of course they do. You know, on, on Pornhub, apparently women's searches are nine hundred percent more likely to reference cunnilingus than men's ones. Why is that? Because guess what? Women don't really tend to have orgasms through penetration. So, you know, it's, it's a massive, massive difference. And we don't see enough representation. Like, do you know, on TV, only once in my entire life have I seen this scenario. And it was a drama uh, written by Andrew Davis. There's a couple having this kind of crazy love affair. And it's all normal TV sex. It's, oh, 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 man on top. <laughs> comes. And the woman's sort of there. And then he says to her, did you come? <laughs> she says, would you like me to? And she takes his hand and she puts it down to her clitoris. And I have never seen that on TV before or since. That's how shocking it is. <laughs> Which brings me rather nicely on to... <laughs> I want to return, therefore, I mean, uh, to, back to the final theme here. Exactly, you know, in this ideal world, we've heard the word feminist porn used, and I'm not quite sure that's a good enough phrase for what we're going to be touching on here. No, it isn't. But in a, in a more enlightened, in a kinder, more fair world, where porn perhaps was a representation of a little closer to a, a perfect real life, what might it look like then? You've given us some ideas, but I mean, Peter, could you define what you would see as, you know, a more idealised porn that took respect of human nature? But well, of course, for the purposes of this event, <laughs> I watched a bit of porn. <laughs> <laughs> and there certainly is a lot of gay porn, not much straight porn, where quite clearly the two people are really into each other. And you can see that by the facial expressions, the touch, the erotic foreplay, um, the conscious pleasuring of one person by another. So it's not all about me, 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 and not all about bang, 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 bang. I think that kind of porn 
um, is the way we need to go. But of course, you can't mandate it, you can't legislate it, you can't force it. Um, it's up to consumers. And I suppose, you know, if more consumers are hitting on the more intimate, tender, uh, affectionate type of porn, then perhaps more producers will create it. Right. So intimacy and something going on emotionally as well as physically yeah. seems to be your hallmark. What do other people, what do the rest of the panel think of that idea? Uh, uh, very simple rules for me. Uh, everybody is consenting to be there and everybody is paid. Right. Pay for your porn, folks. Ban freebies. <laughs> there are many more porn consumers in this room than not. So no room for coercion at all? Yes. Well, now this is going to be where probably Finn and I could have a very fruitful discussion that would take about 16 hours. Well, should we try and boil it down to five minutes? About <laughs> what constitutes coercion. Sure, please do. Uh, woo. <laughs> I mean, going by the 2257 rules, we're all over 18. We've all signed a disclaimer saying that we agree to be there and that this is something that is maintained throughout. I mean, the records that porn producers, even small porn producers, if you've seen one girl with a strap on and another girl with, you know, receiving the strap on and it seems to be amateur and shot in somebody's front room, rest assured somebody has a three ring binder full of the paperwork that they had to sign mm -hmm. to endorse <laughs> that everybody was over 18, their real names, and they, they, cons they consented to be there to the filming of it and the distribution. And yet it. there are often uh, you know, elements of the industry um, which, which have fought that, things like compulsory condom use, compulsory age testing, that you know, the industry wants to make money at the end of the day, and of course there are cases, I mean, I agree with you, I, I'm not gonna sit here and say that people, you know, earning a living in the porn industry should be treated badly, absolutely not, but mm -hmm. I think the industry operates like an industry, and a lot of the time is out to get as much as, as it can But as people. all industries do, yeah. Yes, but, but to, absolutely. But, but staying with this idea of editing and things, I mean, you know, Rowan, you, you edit er erotic text for a living. I, where do you draw the line, the, the, the relevance or the, the, in the includability of coercion? Um, it, re it really depends. I have to say it's a gut feeling and a friend of mine is just going to take over the deputy job at the British Board of Film Classification and she's a good feminist and I feel she's a safe pair of hands to do that. And I think you can understand when it works in the context or it's fantasy and it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like something that is deeply unpleasant and coming from a misogynistic place. And personally, I wouldn't run that sort of stuff. I wouldn't watch that sort of pornography. But... I think we, we have to understand it's quite difficult to say that pornography should just be about intimacy. I mean, personally, I think it's better if it, if it you know, you do have more emphasis on face and contact and, and, and context and storyline. So in a way, it's more like an old-fashioned movie. You're invested in those characters. You believe that they are into each other. But I also know people for whom the opposite is true. And, and who am I to take away their fantasy? Two strangers meet. They have, you know, quick, fast, hard sex. It's not that intimate, but it's very hot. That's also a totally legitimate form of doing things. It's really, as everyone is saying here, I think that you know, you're making a form of pornography where there is a female sensibility, where there is consent, where people get paid well, where they get treated well, where you, know, you see orgasms happen in the way they happen to women in real time. And those would be educational. You know, <coughs> if my sons, eventually 18 or over, were watching that kind of pornography that showed them how to pleasure women, you know, in the way that there are, I think. The best porn I've seen does tend to be gay porn. I was talking about, um, oh, Bruce LeBruce. That was the, some of the first pornography I saw. And, and one of the reasons I like that, it eroticized the male body in a really touching kind of, you know, just hot way. But I think that it would be useful 
to have that sort of pornography for young men and women that showed the way in which people are turned on in real life. Right. I mean, yeah, I think at the moment the sort of, you know, the debates that I had about alternative porn, it's, you know, it's a bit like kind of praising McDonald's for bringing out salad range. You know, <laughs> the whole thing needs to change. <laughs> um, and I, I, I mean, obviously, we know what it wouldn't look like. You know, it wouldn't look like the extremes that people have spoken about. But I also have, I do have a problem with the representation of, uh, of coercion, of violence. Um, you know, why is, there, why is those, those people play, a, acting in those films like, um, you know, petite babysitter whore? She's over 18, dressed like a teenager, no makeup looks like a young person. I have a problem with the fetishization of child rape. I do. And I don't think that we should be normalizing that, eroticizing that. I mean, we have a big problem in culture where the objectification and sexualization of women and children is commonplace. And that needs to change. And the way our culture is within that, it's very hard to know what a different thing would look like. I welcome it, and I welcome attempts. But also, as a feminist, I do also, part of me thinks, hey, if that's your life's work, if that's your thing, making feminist porn, great. But most women are engaged in, you know, trying to stop work for poverty pay, improving childcare. But hey, if in trying to envision what some kind of feminist porn would look like is your thing, but it's Good not trivial because for many sex workers, that is what enables them to be able to afford childcare. The ideas of bodily yeah. autonomy in, yeah. in, you know, the sex repeal. industry is not a charity. Okay, it's we need to charity, improve the welfare state. We need to fund education, pay for childcare, look after people when they are sick, look basic after income. people when they are sole carers. Yes, a basic income. The sex industry globally is a multi-billion dollar capitalist industry that thrives on inequality and on people's vulnerability. Rather than looking at somebody and saying, oh, they look vulnerable, maybe I'll give them some money if they give me a blowjob. Just bloody well give people money to survive and don't ask the criminal sex industry to step in and fill that gap like it's some sort of rescue agency. <laughs> Can I throw back at Finn? One sex worker working in the pornography industry who I interviewed years ago said, is what I do in the porn industry, which pays me very well with my full consent, with people I enjoy having sex with, is that morally or ethically worse, more exploitative, more degrading than working in McDonald's for shit wages and menial, degrading conditions? Well, for a start, my argument is political. It's not moral. I'm not talking about some... I'm not some prudish Mary Whitehouse like feminists are often <laughs> passed off as. And secondly, you know, in McDonald's, you're not the meat. I think that we have... But two wrongs don't make a right. But, 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 but this is... Two wrongs don't make a right, but survival, survival above all else. Two wrongs don't make a right, yeah. But this ludicrous talking about are engaged. yes, that's the dominant thing, but it's a bad analogy, because there are all these other little, lovely little ethical food shops where you go and buy your lovely organic sandwich, and they're doing something good, and they're not McDonald's, and they're made by lovely... I don't know, Hereford Farmers. <laughs> you know, so you, you can't conflate these two things. You yeah. really can't. What you not can say, and this is what I thought this debate but was about, can there be alternative model? It will not be made by the mainstream 
porn industry. It's not at the moment. It's being made by incredibly <laughs> sort of gutsy individuals who find it really hard to get their wares out there, who are frustrated by this sort of debate because actually their biggest problem okay. is that they can't get distribution mm -hmm. and that they don't, they can't kind of, because of the sex wars, they can't say, here, I have got this alternative model. And oh, that's actually, not because of the, the sex thing wars. Is, that's because of how the market is, is, is constructed. But the, yeah, There's the no niche for them. I'm saying fair play to them. But where is the customers are, are bred on from their age of about 11 on free porn? Yeah, we, exactly. And I agree that that's wrong, but that doesn't mean there aren't porn, alternative alternatives. I agree. I agree. Okay, I just want to... I mean, th this is fascinating. We're I think passionate. the time is, ladies and gentlemen, Steamy Love Affairs come to an end and so does this talk. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our speakers this week were Brooke Magnanti, Peter Tatchell, Rowan Pelling, and Finn McKay. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. Please do subscribe, give us a rating, tell anyone you know that might be interested, and of course, join us next week for more debates and interviews with the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.